Good to see you. My name is Tom. If you don't know, I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. Tammy and I finished our summer this past week. I guess it was two weeks ago. We went up to Priest Lake, Idaho. It's up there in the, what is that, the handle? What do they call that? Panhandle, up in the panhandle. And uh, Priest Lake, it's a beautiful, large, and clear lake. It's a little cold, but it's a beautiful <laughs> lake. And it's on the sides, it's got mountains and lots of green trees. And if you look due north, you can see Canada from there. While I was there, I did a lot of knee boarding and tubing and blowing up, because that's what you do when you're being pulled behind a boat. And I also read a book called The Inner Life of Animals, which describes the emotions, feelings, and intelligence of the amazing animals that are all around us, which I found fascinating because the book, it talked about this bird, a bird called a magpie that were flying all around Priest Lake. And I learned that the male and female magpies form a bond together that lasts a lifetime. Isn't that beautiful? The two of them, male and female, they protect their home territory from other birds, but also from others of their own kind. However, there's always a however. However, I was surprised to learn, to learn that much of their territorial defense is strictly for show, at least on the part of the male magpies. You see, while the female magpie aggressively drives off any competitors that intrude their territory, her male magpie turns out to be an opportunist. That is, he, he apparently has a wandering eye or in this case, maybe a wandering beak. As long as his mate is watching him or with an earshot, he'll be just as, as, as aggressive in driving off any intruding female. But if he thinks he's not being observed, well, he begins eagerly courting the attractive stranger instead. The truth is, deceiving and betraying is not only common with magpies, but also with humans. We see this in our text today in John 13, where Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Well, there it is. We all knew that answer, right? We all knew that Judas betrayed Jesus. And how awful, right? So bad that I don't know of anyone who's named their child Judas. I find it interesting, though, that a little later in this same chapter, Jesus tells Peter, same chapter, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. And we all know that he does deny Jesus. So you see, Peter is a betrayer too, but we don't like to think of Peter that way. 
Because for us, Peter is the rock that Jesus said he would build his church upon. And it's true, Peter is the rock, but he also betrayed Jesus. The story of the Bible is about betrayal and reconciliation. It is about how Adam and Eve and everyone after them have at times turned away from God, including you and me. And yet, we learn in 2 Corinthians 5 that despite our betrayal, our turning away, God reconciled us to him through Jesus. And then he gave us, that you and me, the ministry of reconciliation. Did you know that? This is an amazing statement. It's saying that we, the reconciled, can you see that? We, the reconciled, are to become reconcilers with others So what does this mean? It means we should be all about forgiving and restoring broken relationships. But the truth is, reconciling is a real challenge because our world is messed up and broken and it can be so full of hate and greed and jealousy. When we look internationally, we see a crazy war happening right now in Ukraine because of a power-hungry ruler named Putin. When we look nationally, we can see mass shootings with so many people hesitant to do anything about it. We are surrounded by racial and ethnic bigotry and misogyny. We see our politicians, Republicans, and Democrats who don't trust each other and can't seem to work together. We have friendships and churches that have been fractured because of toxic opinions and abhorrent behavior. And we have families that are separated because of lies and betrayal and abuse. Something is messed up and broken. In fact, in many cases, it is shattered and reconciliation can seem impossible. We want to set it right, but we can't seem to get it right And yet we know that with God, there is a hope of reconciliation that is bigger than human wisdom. Today I'm going to discuss betrayal and reconciliation in story form by looking at the life of Joseph. As we go through this story, I want to invite you to think about any broken relationships in your life. Any family members or friends or exes or another person where you need healing and ask you to think about committing to that during this message. I recently read a story in Time Magazine about families and and, uh, specifically about sibling rivalry. Question, do you know how much fighting goes on among siblings? Turn to the person next to you And tell them your guess on how many fights happen each day between siblings that are between the ages of two and four years old. Go ahead. I'll give you a little time to guess amongst yourselves. The answer, siblings between the age of two and four years, this is Time Magazine, siblings between the ages of two and four years old average six fights per hour. And if you do the math, that's 90 fights per day, 3,000 fights per month, and 32,000 fights per year. If you are parenting young kids, it is no wonder that you are tired. It turns out that sibling rivalry, this idea of family conflict, has a long history. 
There was a family in Genesis with 12 brothers, one of whom was named Joseph, and this is how the story starts. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. And he brought their father a bad report about them. So let me start by giving you some family background. The dad in the story is Jacob. And he has had sons by his first wife, Leah, by his second wife, Rachel, by Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, and by Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah. That family dynamic is going to create some real family problems, right? In fact, it sounds like the whole family had kind of a Kardashian thing going on here. <laughs> you should know that the two maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah, are the lowest status wives because they are maidservants. So their sons are the lowest status brothers. And they would be easy to pick on, and that's what Joseph does. He gives his father a bad report about these two. We're not told what the report, bad report was, but apparently Joseph decides, kind of like Cain, that he's not going to be his brother's keeper. He's behaving more like a spy or a five-year-old tattletale. The text says that Jacob did love Joseph the most, more than any of his other sons, because Joseph was born to him when he was old, but also because he is the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And Joseph's brothers clearly knew that he was dad's favorite son because one day, one day, Jacob gives Joseph a robe, a richly ornamented robe, or as in the King James Version is known as the coat of many colors. And it's important for you to know that in those days, clothing was an expression of status. So every time Joseph wears that robe, his brothers are painfully reminded that their father loves him more than he loves them. Question, how do you think Joseph's brothers felt about him? The text says, when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. It's in the Bible. They hated him, and he could not speak a kind word to them. It's interesting, the text doesn't say that they got mad at their father, who was the one playing favorites. Nobody goes to Jacob and says, Dad, I feel so angry that the way you favor our brother Joseph. Nobody talks about the root of the problem. And we are often that way. Families are often that way. The first sign of their broken relationship is not the presence of violence. It will get there, but the beginning is the absence of kindness. They could not speak a kind word. Withdrawal, avoidance, distance, ignoring, those things are meant to wound, and they do. Now, to be fair, Joseph doesn't help. He doesn't. Joseph has a dream where all of his brothers are like sheaves of wheat, a bundle of wheat piled together, tied together in the field. And these wheat, these, these sheaves, they bow down to Joseph. And he does not keep this dream to himself. No, he gathers his brothers and he tells them all about his dream. And there is no indication Joseph had even had a clue 
about the pain he was causing his brothers. In fact, he explains his superior future in great detail. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, to make matters worse, Joseph has a second dream. This is a sequel. This time, all of them, the brothers as well as mom and dad, bow down to Joseph. And he tells them about this dream too. And Jacob, the father, is so upset by Joseph's dream that he rebukes him. And his brothers are angry and jealous. Could anybody be that clueless? Then the brothers, who are homicidally mad at Joseph, are away tending the sheep again. And the dad, he calls his favorite son Joseph and says, I'll think, I think I'll send you to check on your brothers. In other words, Joseph, I'll send you off to do more spying, which we need to remember is what started the bad blood in the first place. And his brothers are already mad enough to kill him, and now he's going to go spy again. Could a parent be that blind? The answer is yes. So Joseph goes. But his brothers, they saw Joseph coming from a long way off. Question, how did they recognize that it was Joseph? Probably because he's wearing that coat of colors. Very bright. It is easy to see from a long way off. You see, when you're jealous of someone... When someone has hurt you, when you hate them, you don't like to think of them as a person. You just want to hurt them. So as brothers, they say, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns, which is a deep hole. It says that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. Let me pause. Here's kind of a wisdom side note. Be really careful who you talk about your anger with. Often people have the idea that it's very therapeutic to rehearse your anger with a sympathetic friend. But if your friend reinforces your resentment and bitterness and envy, as happens here, as in, yeah, Joseph is a jerk, it may actually make your anger problem worse. You should know that some people are like anger incubators. One of the brothers, the fourth-born brother named Judah, comes up with an alternative plan. He suggests they sell Joseph into slavery. That way they can make a profit and avoid a murder charge. Makes sense. They could dip his clothes into goat's blood and show the bloody clothes to their dad Jacob. So Jacob will think an animal killed Joseph, and that's what they did. Question. What article of Joseph's clothing do you think they dipped in the blood? Yes, it was Joseph's robe, the coat of many colors. You see, the brothers, they didn't even have to lie. They could just let the bloody robe lie for them. And Jacob is convinced that Joseph has been killed, and he goes into mourning, and he refuses to be comforted. This is actually kind of a technical term. It means he chooses to extend his time of mourning indefinitely. He says that he will remain in mourning until he dies. Here's the thing. 
The brothers, they get rid of their younger brother. They hated their younger brother. They get rid of him. They do. But that doesn't get them what they want. They don't get their father's love. The family doesn't get healed. They get what they asked for, but not what they wanted. At the beginning of Genesis, you've read about God creating the earth and humanity, and it's all good, right? However, the story of Genesis up to this point is simply one broken relationship, one broken family after another. Adam blames Eve, Cain kills Abel, Isaac is separated from Ishmael, and Jacob from Esau. It sure seems there's something broken in our world. And here in our story, Joseph, he is separated from his family for 22 years. Picture this. He is kidnapped and enslaved. Later, he's unjustly framed and put in prison. Two of his fellow prisoners used to work for Pharaoh, and one night they both have troubling dreams, and Joseph asks them about it, and he's able to help them. And as a result, Joseph ends up being brought before Pharaoh, the great Pharaoh of Egypt. Pharaoh, he had this weird dream, if you remember, with seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. And here's an interesting fact that you may not know. If you've ever had skinny cow ice cream, this is actually where the name comes from. No, I'm, I'm kidding. That is not true. Joseph tells Pharaoh this dream is about the economy, that there will be seven years of economic growth and then seven years of scarcity. And he goes so far as to tell Pharaoh how to use taxation to stabilize the markets. No kidding. I'm not making this one up. This is true and it's brilliant. A great Czech economist, Thomas Sedlacek, writes that Joseph gives the first macro forecast of an economic cycle in human history. It's a fascinating book. He writes, in Joseph's tax plan, he offers Pharaoh advice. In this, we can handily recognize later Keynesian anti-cyclical fiscal policy you got to understand, Joseph's thinking here is so impressive and truly ahead of his time. And as a result of this, Joseph is made prime minister of Egypt. And eventually, this famine, this fierce famine comes, as Joseph had predicted, and it was severe. Meanwhile, back home, Jacob and his family, they're starving and they hear grain is available in Egypt. And so they became desperate. So Jacob sends his son to get some. But he keeps one son home, the youngest living son, Benjamin, who, like Joseph, was born to his favorite wife, Rachel. The other brothers are brought before Joseph to beg for food. It's been 22 years since they sold him, and they do not recognize him. They don't realize this powerful official standing right before them is their brother. They bow down before them. They lay their faces on the ground, just like the dream. Joseph was right. And Joseph, he recognized them. Joseph remembers, but he does not tell them who he is. And this is core to the story. He pretends to be a stranger, and he speaks harshly to them. He actually accuses them of being spies, and they tell him, your servants are honest men, not spies. Your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. 
The youngest is now with our father, that's Benjamin, and one is no more. That one who is no more is Joseph. And Joseph responds, well, if that's true, go home, bring your little brother back as proof, and I will give you what you need, and you will live. You may be wondering, why didn't Joseph just tell them who he was? Clearly, they're desperate. They'll do whatever he asks. Does he want to just, you know, make them squirm? Is he trying to get a little bit of revenge? The reason is because Joseph doesn't just want to forgive them. He doesn't just want to let go of his resentment. He wants to reconcile with them if he can. He wants to reestablish a relationship, but that will take time. That will take the demonstration of trust. Christians sometimes throw around the word reconciliation. They they throw it around rather flippantly in ways that can do lots of harm. And in this story, it teaches how costly genuine reconciliation is. That's where we're headed. Joseph tells them that they must leave one brother as collateral with him in Egypt until they go back to get their younger brother. The brothers say to each other, Surely we are being punished because of our brother, Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come. This is a poignant verse. In the initial story, the writer of Genesis doesn't record any words of Joseph pleading for his life when the brothers betrayed him. But now, 22 years later, a long time later, his brothers remember how he pled for his life. They don't forget. Now they don't call him the dreamer. They don't call him dad's favorite. Rather, he is our brother Joseph. And Joseph, unknown to them, begins to see this change that has happened in their hearts over these 22 years. And Joseph becomes emotional. The text says he literally turned away from them and began to weep. You should know there's quite an immense amount of crying in this reconciliation story. In fact, the Joseph story has more weeping than any other story in the Bible. The brothers, they go home, and for a long time, their dad will not allow them to return to Egypt because he does not want to lose Benjamin. But the famine... The famine is relentless, and the ancient world was a cruel and a brutal place, and they are starving. So eventually, in desperation, Jacob sends his boys back to Egypt, now with Benjamin, now with his favorite son. And Joseph, he arranges a feast for his brothers when they came back, and they still don't know who Joseph is. And here's another little oddity. When the food was served for them, get this, Benjamin's portion of food was five times as much as anyone else's. It was supersized. You may think, what a strange gesture. Why would he do that? Well, one more time, the youngest son is being treated as a favorite, getting more food. And Joseph, he is watching. How will the other brothers respond Will envy still win? Has anything changed? Joseph is watching his brothers. The brothers, they eventually leave, and Joseph seems to be extraordinarily generous with them. He says he'll send them back home 
to their dad with all of the grain they need plus all the money that they brought. He's giving it to them all for free. And these brothers, they're amazed, but they're confused. But then Joseph has his servants go after them and bring them back to Egypt because he says he's missing a treasure. He's missing a cup, a silver cup, a priceless silver cup, his prized possession. All of their belongings are searched, and the silver cup, it shows up. It is found in Benjamin's sack where Joseph had it hidden as a test. The rest of the brothers may leave. Joseph says the rest of the brothers may leave, but Benjamin, the favorite, must stay behind. And Benjamin can rot in prison. A great rabbi in the Middle Ages says a true penitent is one who commits a sin and later is given an opportunity to commit the same sin and refuses. That is a true penitent. Here are the brothers once more with their younger brother, whom their father loves most of all. And they can be rid of him if they want. I mean, why not? They did it before. In this time, they don't even have to do anything wrong. As far as they know, Benjamin's own fault for having, it's Benjamin's own fault for why they have that silver cup. But Judah stands up. Judah, whose idea was to betray and sell Joseph and de deceive his father 22 years ago. That Judah stands up and makes the longest, the most impassionate plea in the entire book of Genesis. He says if he and his brothers go back to Egypt without Benjamin, they would bring their father's gray head down in misery. He goes on. If my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. The point is, and you should all know this after all of my sermons, never disappoint a person with gray hair, right? They are particularly precious to God. No, that's not it. Judah is saying to Joseph... We have an aged father, and there's a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead. That's Joseph. And he's the only one of his mother's. That's Rachel, the favorite wife. And he's the only one of his mother's, mother's sons left, and his father loves him. This takes us to the climax of the story, where Judah says, Let me take the place of the boy Benjamin. I will go to prison. Let my brother go free. I will suffer on behalf of my brother rather than seeing suffering inflicted on my brother. This is huge. Do you see it? For the first time in the ancient world, we see the offer of a substitutionary act of suffering for the sake of someone else. Sound familiar? We see the possibility of reconciliation that comes at a great price. Am I my brother's keeper? That's the question that has haunted Genesis from Cain and Abel, from Isaac, Isaac and Ishmael, and Jacob and Esau. And every time the answer is no. Finally, for the first time, with the full awareness of the consequences, this ancient haunting question is answered yes. And it is at this point Joseph knows that his brothers have changed. 
They are not the same men they were before. They have become their brother's keeper. And now he's able not to just let go of resentment, but reconciliation can commence. The rabbis had a lovely saying that this is the day that forgiveness was invented in human history. At this point, Joseph could no longer contain himself and told the Egyptians to leave the room. He then told his brothers who he was, and then he wept, and he wept, and he wept so loud that everyone could hear him, the Egyptians and even Pharaoh's household. But his brothers were too stunned to take in what he had just said, so he had them gather together with them and told them, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. That phrase strikes me as so human. Joseph wants to make it very clear to his brothers, basically saying, in case you're wondering which brother Joseph I am, I am the brother you sold to Egypt. Sometimes we use the phrase, you should forgive and forget, but they're not the same. In fact, if you forget something, you cannot forgive it. And Joseph doesn't forget. He doesn't live in denial. He doesn't pretend it didn't hurt. He doesn't excuse or rationalize what they did. He brings God into the equation. Joseph says, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. This is crucial because attempts at reconciliation in our world yours and mine, can be damaging if they're done too quickly or done with somebody who is not genuinely repentant or genuinely trustworthy. It would not have been right for Joseph to say, do not be distressed until he knew that they were deeply distressed, that they had changed, and that they were now trustworthy. This is important Pain and distress over wrongdoing are an indispensable part of spiritual growth and moral health. And if somebody has wronged you, you can let go of your desire for revenge, even if they're unrepentant. You can decide not to live in a prison of resentment, even if they don't repent. But reconciliation, the rebuilding of a relationship, requires repentance and time and the demonstration of trustworthiness. And that's what happens here after 22 years, and the brothers are healed. We're told Joseph gave them carts, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them, he gave new clothing. The text doesn't say what kind of clothing, but my guess is he got them all robes, very colorful robes. In this story, the brothers go home, and they tell old Jacob, Joseph is still alive. In other words, they confess to their fathers what they had done 22 years earlier. You see, reconciliation is not about avoiding unpleasantness or covering things up. It requires truth. It took 22 years for this family to become a family again. Reconciliation is not easy. It is not quick. It can take a long time. It can take years, but it is worth it. As I close and the band comes back up here on the stage, let me ask, 
Where in your life is there a relationship that needs reconciliation? Is it with a husband or a wife or an ex, a mom or a dad, a dishonest business partner, an unfaithful friend, somebody who lied or cheated or betrayed you? What steps could you take to be reconciled with them? May I suggest start with forgiveness and then move to reconciliation. If it gets messy, let it be messy. If it's, confusion, if it's confusing, seek wisdom. If you need prayer, get prayer. If you need wise counsel, get wise counsel. If you've tried it 10 times and it has not worked, try it an 11th time. Maybe you're thinking, why should I take the first step? They do not deserve it. Probably not. But neither did Joseph's brothers, neither do I, and neither do you. Take the step anyway, because another young dreamer once stepped as a servant into this world, and he too was stripped of his robe, and he too was betrayed and deserted by his brothers. And he is the one who finally, ultimately said, I will pay the debt. I will bear the cross. Let the punishment fall on me. Our world is messed up. It is broken. It is shattered. But God is about reconciliation. And God says, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So if there's a broken relationship in your life, you take the first step today. And now we come to the time of communion. It's a beautiful time where we can all get together and talk with God and tell him our deepest thoughts and concerns and prayers and pains. And remember that we have a God who loves us and wants us to feel true shalom, full of peace, comfort, and goodness. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, all are welcome at the table.